Father, here we are in your presence, longing to hear your voice, but not just to hear, but to let it impact our hearts, to allow you to work in us, to will and do of your good pleasure, to lead us to a place of rest in Jesus that will change absolutely every area of our life. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we look at your word together. May it be your voice that we hear speaking to us through the words of the Bible. Thank you so much for the love that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. As he trudged up the staircase, his back was aching. He was in agony. He could feel literally every bone in his body. Every muscle felt like it was about to be ripped to shreds. He didn't know how he could do it any longer. He'd been working as hard as he could. And as he opened the front door and he stumbled inside, he said, Dad, that's it. I don't understand why we're doing this. What's the point? We've got to stop. His dad looked at him and said, Son, don't you ever say those words again. The only thing you can trust in is your muscles, your bones, your back. And son, we've got to build this tower. Son, go to bed until you have a better attitude. Tomorrow morning is a new day. This is how I believe might have been the attitude of Nimrod, the mighty hunter that we read about in Genesis chapter 10. I invite you to open to Genesis chapter 11. And as you're going there, we're going to look at two verses in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, we see the descendants of Noah. We see this genealogy, the table of nations, some call it. And as it's going through there, it tells us something about a guy named Nimrod who did something different. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8 says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a strong one, the Hebrew word. He was a mighty one, a strong one, who, who relied on what he could accomplish. Just two verses later, it says, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Achad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Nimrod was mighty, and he, what did he do? The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, there's something fascinating when you read this, because when it says the beginning of his kingdom, this is the first time in 10 chapters that Genesis again goes back to this word beginning, where it says Bereshit, in the beginning, Bereshit bara, in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here we see that it's not God who is beginning something, but it's a guy named Nimrod, and it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This is the first time that you see this word beginning happening again in the book of Genesis after Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the Bible commentary, Jock, Jock Dukan comments on this, a professor of mine from Andrews University, the, the SDA International Bible Commentary. He says this, Nimrod, whose name means we shall rebel. How do you like that for a name? You know, sometimes we choose names for our kids, names for what we hope for their future. Nimrod's name means we shall rebel. That's what his name meant. He presents himself as the creator of Babel, as God is the creator of heaven and earth. So he presents himself as what he's known for in the genealogy as the one who began this kingdom of Babel. So let's take a, a, a look at this kingdom of Babel and let's look at what it looked like. Why did it start and, and what possessed them to do this? We're going to look at this in the context of God versus Babel. 
We saw already that it says Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God. Genesis 10 verse 10, it says, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. But let's go to Genesis 11 and verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along. We'll also have it up on the screen. But it says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Everything was uniform. Not only did they understand the same language, but they're all talking with the same words. They're all using the same exact expressions. There's a uniformity to this group. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Right? So what do they do? Break it down. What do you, what do you see so far? What are they doing? It's not a rhetorical question. What are they doing? They're traveling. And as they're traveling, what do they see? The land of Shinar and they decide to dwell there. Interestingly enough, uh, if you look back at what God had commanded Noah after the flood, what did he tell Noah and his sons to do? Genesis 9 verse 1 says, so God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He doesn't say, go dwell over here in this land. He says, go expand throughout the planet. I've, I've recreated. Last week we talked, or two weeks ago, we talked about the recreation of the planet after the flood. God says, I have recreated this planet for you. Now go fill it. Multiply in this planet. Enjoy all that I have created for you. So they're going along and all of a sudden they find this plane and they say, let's dwell right here. So God says, fill the earth. But they dwell there and a few verses later, we, we read that the reason that they do that in verse 4, it says, lest we be scattered over the whole earth. They're concerned that they might end up filling the whole earth. They're concerned that God might scatter them out. They're afraid of this. And so they settle on the plain of Shinar, which is where they build this city called Babel, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. Now, this word dwell is the second time that it's been used in Genesis. And the first time that it's used is back in Genesis 4, verse 16. You remember Cain, when he murdered his brother, God sent him out. And it says this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. It's pretty fascinating as you look through these genealogies. You look at Cain, and he's the one that starts cities. Then you have Nimrod, who's also building these cities. Cities in general are not looked upon very positively in the Bible. They are, 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 are beds of evil, is the way it's looked at in the Bible. And if we look at cities today, honestly, can we say that it's much different than that? I'm thankful that we get to live in Templeton or Paso Robles, Atascadero. They're, they're cities, but in comparison to what people face on a day-to-day basis, my heart goes out to people who don't get to see trees, who don't get to see all the things that we get to see on a daily basis, who have the rush and bustle of life constantly pressing on them. Living in a city is a tough place to live. Now, some people are called there. They're called there to be missionaries. They're called there to work there, to, to help people. But in general, that wasn't God's original plan. His original plan was for us to be immersed in his creation, to, to be able to enjoy a simpler life, to be able to in, see God in his creation, and to be able to appreciate God for all that he is. And that's what he designed for those after the flood. He recreated this beautiful planet. He, he had renewed creation for his people. And now they're beginning to settle down and to build a city. 
Genesis 11 verse 3 continues, and it says this, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make and bake, make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. Now this was in an area where the plain of Shinar, if you've ever been to modern day Iraq, there's not a whole lot of stones there to build something with. So they say, we can't come in and build something with stones here like we might have done in the mountains. But here, let's make bricks, we'll bake them thoroughly. But notice some of the language that's used here. It starts off by saying, then they said to one another. It's using the exact same Hebrew verb that was used earlier to describe in Genesis chapter 1 and again and again what God did. In Genesis chapter 1 verses 3 to 29, again and again it says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, and there was. And again and again it tells us that in Genesis chapter 1 that God spoke and it came into existence. Now it says that these people come and they, they say, let's do this. And interestingly enough, it's not clear in the uh, English translation, but when you look down and it says they had brick for stone, it really is saying, and it was that they had brick for stone. So they said, and then it tells you what they said, and then it says, and it was that there was stone. It's a, it's a clear uh, uh, echo from the Genesis chapter 1 creation uh, account. So here you see that on the one hand they're saying, They're saying, let's go and do this. Let's make bricks. Let's make mortars. But God was the one who originally created by speaking, and it was. But not only that, what is it that they say? Repeat it with me, what they say in the quotes there. You see it? Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So when they say, come, let us make bricks, this again echoes something that God has done, and we see them doing it again. Verse Four, it says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let us build. Let us make. They're conversing together. They're having this dialogue together about what they are going to do. Do you remember that at all in the creation account? How God comes down and he says, let us make man in our image. And we'll see later on that God responds to this whole story by saying, let us go down there and take care of what they're doing. There's a clear uh, parallel here. So it says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. But here we see in Genesis 11, they're saying, let us make, let us build this in our own strength. So they, they say that they want to build this tower. What do you notice that's significant about this tower? What are some of the descriptors here in verse 4 of the, what they want this tower to be like? And what the purpose of this tower is? They want it to be tall. How tall? To the heavens. Now, we read about the flood. The flood, it's, we're told that it reached, what was it, 22 cubits above the highest mountain, or 15 cubits, I forget which it was, above the tallest mountains. But now they're saying, let's build a tower, and we're going to build this tower, and it's not just going to be taller than the tallest mountains, but we're going to build this tower so tall that it's going to reach all the way up into heaven itself. Why do you think they're wanting to do this? What's the purpose of building a a tower this tall right after you've had a flood? Well, this may be a few generations later. It might be a hundred or so years later after the flood. They're building this tower 
to escape from another flood. Let us make this tower whose top is in the heaven. And then they're not just doing it to escape a flood, but they're also doing it for a specific purpose. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. I'm beginning to recognize something in my life. Everything that I do has a purpose behind it. You may not realize this, but I want you to take, take for example, a college student. A college student who you say, okay, where are you going to go to school this year? They say, oh, I'm going to go to Stanford University. Oh, wow. Wow. Why do you want to go to Stanford University? That sounds kind of like you really want to excel in whatever field you're going to. Well, yeah, I want to pick your field of career that they decide maybe they're going to go to medical school. So they decide that they want to eventually become a doctor. They tell you that they want to become a doctor. You say, well, why do you want to become a doctor? And then they say, well, I want to be a missionary. You say, oh, this whole time I thought that they just wanted to be a doctor so they could make a lot of money. But actually, a lot of doctors are doing it for the purpose of helping other people. And and that's clearly their purpose. They want to be a doctor to serve and to help other people. But then you ask them, well, why do you want to be a missionary? Well, my parents were always missionaries, and I think it would be kind of a fun thing to do. And you realize, well, maybe it's not really to glorify God. And pretty soon, in any direction, any decision that we make in our lives, if we dig down deep enough, we find that there's either a desire to glorify ourselves or other people, make a name for ourselves, or there's a desire to glorify God. We can't have either one. And, and I can be up here and I can be a pastor and I can talk to you about God and I can have a desire for this church to be filled and overflowing. And I can do all of that and underneath have a selfish purpose and be wanting to be glorified myself. Or on a day-to-day basis, what wakes me up, what drives me can be that I love Jesus. And I want Jesus to be glorified and, and I want to share Him with other people. But here, clearly, their object, their desire is to make a name for not God, but for themselves. Their purpose is to have a great name, to be famous. Now, if you look later on in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he tells him, I am going to give you a great name. I'm going to make your name great. Having a great name is not necessarily the bad thing. The problem is, where is our heart motivation? Are we sold out for Jesus? Are we focused on ourselves? Are we doing it for ourselves or are we doing it for God? So they want to build this tower. They want it to ascend to the very heavens. They want to, to be able to provide an escape route from the flood. And this is going to provide glory for them throughout the planet. And they're thinking that this is going to create this one world empire maybe where they can all come together and they can be safe from this God who allowed a flood to come on this planet. Now if you look back, In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, when the serpent is tempting Eve, do you remember the temptation that he gave to her? He said, in the day you eat of it, you're not surely going to die. But then he goes on to say, you will be like God. He said, you're going to to grow up through this experience of, of throwing off God's way and choosing your own. You're going to become like God. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised because Lucifer, later in Isaiah 14, is described. And and if you look at Isaiah 14, you read through it, it can be kind of confusing because it talks about how this is a lament against Babylon. 
And it's against the king of Babylon. Why? Because Babylon throughout the Bible represents really Satan's mode of thinking, Satan's way of doing things. And so in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 13, it says, For you have said in your heart, talking about Lucifer, that son of the morning, it says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Those, those people, Nimrod's followers on the plain of Babel, the plain of, Sh- uh, of Shinar, which is Babel, they're just doing exactly what Lucifer would have them to do. They're trying to exalt their, their themselves up to heaven itself. Goes on to say, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And you see that throughout this story. I mean, he's beginning a kingdom for himself. He's saying, they're, they're, they're going on what they say to do. They're saying, let us make, let us build. There's all of these things that are basically replacing what God has longed to do in their life all along. Later on, we find that this same kingdom of Babylon, which is established in the same place, although many of them are scattered, some still set up a kingdom there. And eventually later, you find a king, an arrogant king in Daniel chapter 4 named Nebuchadnezzar who says this, the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? I did it for myself. I'm a self-made man. I have established this kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar says. I encourage you, If you haven't read it recently, go read Daniel chapter 4 because it's one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible because it reveals how God takes an arrogant king and humbles him. And I believe I'm going to sit across from that table one day in heaven from Nebuchadnezzar and hear his story about how Jesus came close to him and saved him. Don't discount somebody who's in Babylon. Don't discount somebody who's trusting in their own works and what Jesus might do to save them and pull them out of Babylon because he did it for Nebuchadnezzar. Genesis chapter 11, it says, come let us build a, a, a tower for ourselves, a city for ourselves, and a tower whose top is into the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves so that we're not scattered across the earth, across the whole face of the earth. Now, can you imagine as they're building... I imagine that that maybe one day, Nimrod's son, he's there building on the tower when suddenly he hears it off in the distance. He hears a rumbling. He says, oh no, here it comes. We haven't gotten this tower high enough yet. Ah, I'm going to go run and find dad. Dad, dad, what are we going to do? There's a storm coming this way. And Nimrod begins to gather everybody together. And he says, all right, people, what we've got to do is just everybody pack as high as we can in this tower. Hopefully the flood won't come too high. The storm begins to come. The rain begins to pelt down. What are they missing in all of this? As they're building this tower, as they're thinking about what they can accomplish in the face of God, what they can do against God Himself, they're missing what God has promised to do for them. They're breaking their backs. They're working so hard. They're trying to accomplish their own salvation Forgetting the fact that in Genesis chapter 9, God had given this beautiful promise that we talked about two weeks ago. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant, my promise with you and with your descendants after you. Goes on to say in verse 11, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again will flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. I come to the conclusion about these people. There's, There's one of two options for them. 
One, they don't believe that there's a God. And so they're trying to accomplish this because they think that the flood came from natural consequences. That's one option. Two, they are doing this because they have come to misunderstand who God is. Either they don't believe in God or they don't understand who God really is. Or gods. Maybe they believe in gods, plural. One way or the other, what they have lost sight of is an infinite God of love who has promised them salvation already. Who's promised that He won't send the flood. They're busy building a tower to save themselves and God's like, I promised you already. Can you imagine as they're huddling there trying to figure out what they're going to do because they haven't built the tower high enough and as Nimrod's son looks and he's like, hey dad, what's that? There's this beautiful rainbow that's arcing across the valley. Nimrod says, oh, don't worry about it. That's just some natural phenomenon. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. We've got to build the tower. Get back to work. Let's build this tower higher. How often in my own life am I spinning the pedals? <laughs> am I trying my hardest? Am I flexing every muscle in my body to accomplish what I think I need to in order to save myself? Be it in my physical life, with my finances, with my home, with my family, or be it in my spiritual life to ascend closer to God, to become close to God. I'm doing everything possible, and all the while I'm missing the fact that He has already established a promise for me. He has already given me the covenant. And it goes on to say in verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make with me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I promise you that when you see this, you can know that this is who I am. I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God who wants to save you. And we see that, again, in Ezekiel chapter 1, when God's glory is described, that there's a rainbow around Him. In Revelation chapter 4, when we see God's throne, that there's a a rainbow around God's throne. In Revelation chapter 10, when I believe God shows up, it says that He has, Jesus shows up, it says He has a rainbow around His head. God looks at you with love and mercy. Do you recognize it this morning? Or are you like the tower builders building a tower for yourself today? Are you trying to figure out how to save yourself from the situations of your life or from the spiritual uh, destitution that you may feel, the separation from God? I have good news for you. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. His desire is for you to be with Him. He has already accomplished this for you. If you will accept it, if you will only believe the promise. Well, last two weeks ago when we talked about how the earth was recreated, we noticed that there were parallels. There were a lot of different parallels there. We saw that each day of creation was paralleled as the flood began to be dried up. We saw that day one was there when the wind is over the the earth, just like the Spirit of God was over the earth. We saw day two that there was the division of waters. We saw day three there was the appearance of dry land and plants. Day four, the appearance of light. Day five, the deliverance of the birds. Day six, we saw the deliverance of animals and humans and then the blessing of food provided. And then the mention of humans being created in the image of God. And then we saw how not long after that, Noah is planting a vineyard just like the garden. And then he goes into that vineyard and he eats the fruit of it. He becomes drunk. He becomes naked. And his nakedness is covered, 
just like you see with Adam and Eve. If you missed that one, you can go back and check it out for yourselves. But remember, what did day seven represent? Day seven, God rested, Genesis chapter two, verses one to three says, from all of his labors, all the work that he had done, he rested and he blessed that day, he sanctified it. So if we're looking in parallel, in the story of the flood, God recreates this planet and then he gives the promise of that rainbow. And we looked at Genesis 31. Genesis 31 uses the same wording, the everlasting covenant, which is only used one other time in the entire Bible, but it's used to refer to the Sabbath and to the rainbow. And then he says this, speak also to the children of Israel, verse 13, saying, surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The Sabbath is like the rainbow. It's this beautiful picture that I'm the one who will save you. I'm the one who will do the work if you will believe the promise and stop trying to build towers yourself. If you will trust in me, if you will experience a relationship with me through the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of the most beautiful time periods in order for us to establish that relationship with God. Where we have time that we can specifically dedicate to focusing on Jesus. Where we can specifically take time aside from all of our work, all of our busyness, and say this is time for Jesus. The Great Controversy, page 437, says this about the Sabbath. This is fascinating. Had the Sabbath been universally kept, man's thoughts and affections would have been led to the Creator as the object of reverence and worship. So if the Sabbath had been universally kept, if they had not ignored this sign that God gave that I am the Creator, if they had kept hold of that from the beginning then they would have been led to the Creator as the object of reverence and worship. And then it goes on to say this, and there would never have been an idolater, an atheist, or an infidel. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? To say that if only they had remembered the sign, then nobody would have become an idolater, nobody would have become an atheist, nobody would have become an infidel. That's a pretty amazing claim to say that, that because this is based in creation, it's, it's the sign of creation that, that they would have never forgotten the Creator, never become idolaters, never become atheists, never become infidels. Why is this? I believe it's because of a principle the Desire of Ages captures in page 35. It says, The principle that man can save himself by his own works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. The idea that we can build something big enough, tall enough in our lives to save ourselves from whatever situations we're facing, to come close to God, to reach to the heavens itself. That idea is the foundation of every heathen religion on the planet. Nobody has become an idolater, an atheist, or an infidel, except for, for having believed that they could do something by their own works to save themselves. And you actually see this because if you look to the plain of Shinar, there's actually the remnants of something called the ziggurat of Ur. Now, this is not the Tower of Babel. You might be thinking, oh, really? Is that the Tower of Babel? No. This was built after that time. But it's fascinating that right after the time period of the Tower of Babel, which might have been, you know, 2,700 years before Christ, somewhere in there, 
right around that time, you begin to see that these gigantic towering structures are built on the planet to worship heathen gods or to exalt human beings. We see that with this ziggurat in Ur. We don't know exactly what took place on top, but uh, uh, there's some historians who believe that there was a, a cult worship that took place on the top of it. You think about the pyramids. Now, those pyramids aren't there necessarily to exalt a god, except for that they turned a human being into a god. And when he's buried, they build this huge monument to him as he goes into the afterlife. And they, they're again exalting somebody besides the creator god. You look to all the way over in Central America, South America. This is in Belize. I actually got to go see this myself. It's the high temple in Lamini, Belize. This thing is beautiful. You climb it, it has these steep stairs, and you can see how it was pictured for the worshiper or the priest that they could ascend to heaven itself. But this thing is not just beautiful, and it's it's surrounded by a, a jungle, and that's great. But it's also horrific. Because you know what they found there? They found the bones of little children, little babies, who were sacrificed some God, trying to pacify a God, trying to, to convince a God that, that, that they were worthy of him, and they took their own child and they sacrificed it. Having become a new parent, I cannot fathom this. To put my little child on an altar and sacrifice them, that's, that's the worst possible thing in the world. They must have had such a terrible picture of who God is. And yet, could it be Sometimes I have the same picture. Maybe if I pray hard enough, maybe if I just go through the right motions, maybe I can make myself worthy somehow of his love. Ultimately, that leads to the same exact place. It leads us to being idolaters. It leads us to eventually maybe not even believing in God. Because we see this picture of a God who doesn't truly love us. But that's not the picture that we find in the Bible. Patriarchs and prophets talking about the Tower of Babel says this. It says, Satan was seeking to bring contempt upon the sacrificial offerings that prefigured the death of Christ. In what took place at Babel, he was trying to do away with our understanding of who Jesus is through the sacrifices. Goes on to say this. And as the minds of the people were darkened by idolatry, he led them to counterfeit these offerings and sacrifice their own children upon the altars of their gods. The Bible account doesn't tell us that it started yet at this point, but we can see that it's the foundation that leads to child sacrifice later on. And this is something that's taken place around the world in different cultures as people have tried to pacify an angry God. The good news this morning is that God doesn't exist. There is not a God who's so angry with you that he needs you to sacrifice something in order for him to accept you. That's a lie that Satan is longing for you to believe this morning. And he's longing for you to become a part of Babylon so that you'll build towers and you'll exhaust yourself and eventually you'll be lost. But friends, what we need to remember is there's a rainbow surrounding the throne of God. That every storm that happens, there's a rainbow that can be found in that storm if the sun is shining. And in your life, there is an everlasting covenant, a promise that Jesus has made. And not only that he has made, but that he has fulfilled himself. I love what it says 
uh, well, first of all, we see in these, these, these symbols, these towers, that, that man is seeking to ascend to heaven by his own works and his might. Nimrod was a mighty man. And so he founded Babylon and he built this tower so that they could ascend to heaven. Man tries to ascend to heaven by his own works and might. But look at Genesis chapter 11, at the response of God to this arrogance, the response of God to, to what they are doing and trying to make themselves ascend to heaven. Verse 5 says, But the Lord came down to see the city. Do you see that? <laughs> they're trying to go up to God, and they think that they're building a tower high enough to reach the heavens, and God says, Oh, I better go down there. <laughs> I think I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to descend a little bit. I'm going to step down from my throne and I'm going to come a little bit closer to them because they don't realize how big I am. <laughs> I need to go down and see what's going on in this city. They're trying to go up and God says, I'm going to meet them. I'm going to go down and meet them down there. Verse 7 says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Imagine what that day is like when the tower's getting tall enough so that they can't just directly ask for the tools and they, they begin to yell down for one tool and the, it gets all garbled and they're bringing up a different tool and pretty soon they're fighting with each other and they leave this project behind and God does this from his infinite heart of love because he's not willing for you or I to think that we can save ourselves. He's not willing for you to go on day on day in and day out and think that there's something that you can accomplish towards your salvation because it's been accomplished in Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. If Noah had not built the ark, we wouldn't be here today. He's our great, 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 great grandfather who by faith built an ark. Out of godly fear, he followed God's instructions. But God's instructions to the children of Israel... Uh, not the children of Israel, the children of Ham here, was to go and fill the earth. And they didn't go and fill the earth. They weren't to build something because God hadn't told them to do that. What we find is when we believe God's promises, it leads us to follow whatever he tells us to do because we trust him as a God of love, not a God that needs to be pacified, but a God who wants what's best for us. And so we follow in his past. So we see that God responds in the story by coming down to where they're at. Now let's look at Romans chapter 10 verse 6 here quickly. It says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not ascend, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Don't think to yourself, how can I get closer to God? How could I possibly ascend to Jesus so that I could bring him down? Righteousness by faith does not work that way. How does it work? It goes on two verses later to say this, verse, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that Christ has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe that Jesus is the one who came down so that you could have life, you'll stop trying to ascend yourself and you'll trust in his righteousness. John 6, verse 38, Jesus himself says, For I have come down from heaven. I, I came down here to you guys. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is that will? The next verse, or two verses later says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, who recognizes the God of love that I am, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
Jesus is looking for people, not who will try to ascend themselves, but who will look to the God who descended himself, who stepped down from the throne of the universe and took on human flesh and walked the path of life for you to accomplish for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And who went all the way, humbled himself to the point of obedience on the cross and took the penalty of sin upon himself so that you could have his life, his righteousness, so that you can have his spirit living in you, working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Friends, don't forget the promise of the rainbow. Don't forget the sign of the covenant. And don't forget the other sign of the covenant, the Sabbath that gives us this opportunity to learn to rest in Jesus. I love what it goes, uh, what it says in um, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus gives this invitation. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I just have a real question for you this morning. How are you feeling? (laughs) Are you feeling energized today? Are you feeling like you can conquer the world? If so, that's great. But my guess is that the majority of you are feeling weary and heavy laden. My guess is that there are a lot of us that are feeling burdened and weighed down with the cares of our life, with the things that are happening to us and wondering where God is in the midst of it. And Jesus is standing the whole time saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm going to lead you into an activeness of service. In fact, if you read in the book Steps to Christ, it says the one whose heart rests most fully in Christ will be the most active for him. It's not a rest of like sleeping all day long in my bed, but it's a rest in knowing that he's prepared good works beforehand that I should walk in him, in them. Trusting in what he can accomplish in me and through me and just allowing him to do the work. And he goes on to say, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm the one who comes down, not the one who's trying to exalt himself. That's Lucifer. If you ever think of God as the one who needs you somehow to puff him up, that's Lucifer. God is the one who comes down. And he wants us to learn from him who is meek and lowly in heart. And through that, we will find rest for our souls. Hebrew chapter 4, Paul talking about it, he says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you come to, seems to have come short of it. Have you ever, ever wondered what it means to fear God? You know, the three angels' messages talk exactly about Babylon and how to escape from Babylon. And it starts off by saying what? Fear God and give him glory. The fear that we need to have is the fear of forgetting his promises. The fear of adding self into the picture. The fear of thinking that we can accomplish something. The fear of not following in his footsteps. The fear of not allowing him to work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And then look at what he goes on to say. Down in verse 9. There remains therefore a rest... For the people of God. Now this isn't the best translation because that word rest there is actually the word sabbatismos. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There still is this opportunity to enter into rest. And I believe that this is accomplished most fully by not forgetting the sign 
of the seventh day Sabbath. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Friends, the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath, can be as much a part of Babylon as Babylon itself. That might sound kind of heretical to say. But the seventh-day Sabbath, if you are doing it to build a tower in your life, if you're doing it to accomplish your salvation, if you think that you can keep the Sabbath to such an extent that it's going to merit something between you and God, I hate to break it to you this morning, but you're living in Babylon. That is what Babylon is all about. But if, on the other hand, you have chosen to accept His works which are finished as creator, and also as the one who accomplished it all and said, it is finished on the cross, then you can truly rest on the seventh-day Sabbath. Rest in his finished, accomplished work for you. Rest in who Jesus is. Rest in the fact that he will complete the good work which he has begun in you. Friends, that's the beauty of the seventh-day Sabbath. In the Gospel Herald, April 23, 1902, it says this, The invitation is, come unto me. And I will give you rest. Have you come to him renouncing all your makeshifts? Those towers that you can build. All your unbelief. Your your doubt that he's a God of love that wants to save you. All your self-righteousness. Your belief that, that you can merit something. That you can accomplish something. Come just as you are. Weak, helpless, and ready to die. That's good news this morning. What is the rest? It is the consciousness that God is true, that He never disappoints the soul who comes to Him. His pardon is full and free, and His acceptance of you means rest to your soul. Rest in His love. I don't know about you, but I have often forgotten that that is what the seventh-day Sabbath is all about. That it is a sign of His covenant to sanctify me, to make me holy, to make me a person of love. And I, for myself, want to set aside Sabbath as a day to pursue that relationship, to come to Jesus so that I can have rest. If that's your desire, I just want to invite you to just bow your heads with me. And as you bow your heads, maybe just have that that contrasting picture in your mind. Think about those people there. They're building a tower. They're thinking that, that maybe they can accomplish something to, to save themselves from the next flood. And meanwhile, off in the valley, God has put this beautiful rainbow saying, I promise I will save you from a flood. And let your mind carry back even further to the sign of the covenant of the creator of the universe who created a good creation and who rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And he blessed that day. He set it apart as a gift to you. I want you just to have a conversation with Jesus. Maybe you're a little bit like Nimrod and his descendants. And you've been ignoring this sign. Maybe you've actually been totally forgetful of it. Or maybe... You just haven't really appreciated the beauty of it. You've seen rainbows before and they're, they're, they're great, but you don't really appreciate the beauty of the Sabbath. Wherever you're at, just open your heart to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you help me to see that you are a covenant-keeping God? 
And then ask him to make those 24 hours extra special. And maybe he'll, he'll lead you to, to make a plan for how you'll take time during the rest of this 24-hour period or, or the next Sabbath that's coming up and, and every week how you can make something special during that day for you and Jesus where you can come and experience the rest that only he can give. Just take a moment to talk to Jesus. Father, thank you that you've called us to come out of Babylon. Thank you that you've called us to appreciate what you have already accomplished for us. Thank you for the rainbow that reminds us of that. And thank you for the seventh-day Sabbath that gives us the opportunity to appreciate it and to experience that rest for ourselves. Lord, I pray for each of my friends here today. Lord, so often we hear your word and we walk out and we totally forget about it. But somehow I just ask that something might be different today. For my heart, for each heart in this place, that we would remember you as the God of love who has covenanted with us that if we will come to you, you will carry us through. That your promise, your will is everlasting life. Father, may we trust in the God who made the rainbow the God who set aside the seventh-day Sabbath, and the God who loves us more than our own existence. Thank you for that love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.